and welcome to What's in Farley and Williams Countdown to COP Financing and Fueling the Future podcast series. I'm your host, Barry Main Garcia. In today's chapter, we will be discussing mining and commodities and the drive towards achieving net zero. I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Daisy East. Daisy is a partner in the firm's energy team based in London. Daisy advises on the financing aspects of projects across the energy sector, ranging from power generation to mining and metals and infrastructure. Her experience includes conventional loan type financing, as well as convertible notes at a senior and mezzanine level. Welcome, Daisy. Thank you, Vari. I'm pleased to be here. I'd like to start with an overarching question about the status of the mining and commodities sectors and where we are in the drive towards net zero. Fine. So I think I'll probably focus on metals and minerals because the soft commodities is, is a whole topic in itself, food security, water security, adaptation and so on. Looking at mining, minerals, metals, I think there's two ways to look at the question. From a global drive to net zero, the need for critical minerals sits right across it. We're not going to get to net zero without a significant expansion of the metals and minerals sector. Within the sector itself, it's a work in progress. Successive COPs have had a, a significant impact on the mining industry and the pressure for change is intensifying. I think there'll be more from COP28. The nature of the industry means it's unlikely to achieve a net zero status within itself, but to secure the investment whilst being fundamentally necessary um, to the global net zero drive, but also to just transition to a reduction of the poverty gap, to supporting a growing global population. We're seeing significant work being done um, to preserve the, the sector's social license and, and secure investment. It's perhaps worth a, a short mention of just transition and, and what that means and why it's relevant to this conversation particularly. There's many definitions of, of just transition, but they have common themes the cost and benefit of the transition to net zero being shared fairly, the resulting net zero economy being fair, inclusive, leaving no one behind. Given the nature of much of the value chain in the mining and metal sector, you can't really discuss the transition to net zero in anything other than a just way. Thank you. So the, the just transition is really fundamental. It's an intrinsic part of the effort to achieve net zero. I think that's right from a global perspective, but particularly in the context of mining and metals. Thank you. And if we focus on mining and metals and uh, really sort of home in on that, the industry, as you say, is unlikely to achieve net zero status within itself. So what are the greatest barriers to the industry achieving net zero or otherwise contributing towards the global net zero drive? It's a good question. I think there's unique challenges faced by the industry, both its innate ability to achieve net zero and its ability to support the global drive. You start with the social license. You know, your stereotypical mining vision is polluting, it's scarred landscapes, it's displaced communities. And that's before you get to things like deep seabed mining, job losses from technological development, the move away from mining thermal coal. You know, it's it's a difficult sector and, and the social license is a challenge. And that really affects the investment from general investors who shy away from, from activities that are difficult to report on, you know, to, to, the, to their socially conscious uh, investors. It's a hugely energy intensive uh, industry. The scope one and scope two CO2 emissions are 
at least 1% of the global figures. And that's driven by the operations and the power consumption. Your scope three emissions are enormous, but obviously a lot of that comes from thermal coal. Um, but net zero is always going to be very challenging within the sector. We are seeing hydrogen powered trucks and increasing electrification of processing, but achieving those things themselves is, is really challenging in typically remote locations for these sorts of projects. There is an escalating demand against, frankly, a diminishing ore grade to support the transition, but also in respect of non-transition metals that we need just to support a growing population and to try to reduce a, a poverty gap, raising living standards. So, you know, these are complex projects in a complex environment. As I say, they're often remote. They include not only the mine, but also transportation, power sub-projects. They're hugely dependent on and exposed to nature. They need a lot of water, but they're typically also very vulnerable to heavy rainfall in the same breath. And those dependencies and impacts, they need management and probably adaptation um, as the sector expands. They exist in a world of fluctuating political support that affects their permitting, it affects their regulation, and it affects it affects investor appetite. Their product is exposed to considerable price fluctuation as well because the supplies change, the extraction technology changes, and demand and application of the product changes. Take you know, battery technologies is such a hot topic with electric cars, but there's only been 15 years or so of the electric car. If you think where we were 15 years into the internal combustion engine, there was a lot of development to come. Assume we're the same with the batteries. Who knows which commodities are going to prevail in the resulting technology and therefore supporting a mine that might not be the one that produces the ore that everybody wants is a, is a challenge. So, you know, there are big barriers. Thank you. So for metals and minerals, there's a real and competing challenge of addressing social and environmental issues and increasing and varying demands, as you've indicated. And on top of that, we're trying to achieve net zero in a sector which is hugely energy intensive, really complex indeed, as you've said. Exactly. Let, let's talk about financing. What does the mining and commodity sector need to make financing easier to achieve net zero? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because it, it's paramount that there is more funding. You know, we really need the the expansion of of the sector, that funding needs to be all along the value chain because if the consumer or the taxpayer can't pay for the net zero product, electric cars or renewable electricity or green steel infrastructure, then the efforts at earlier points in the chain are, are really challenging. I think in terms of how we get money into the sector, and and perhaps it comes back a bit to social license, um, but not entirely. I think there's a combination of national and global government regulatory action probably some government financial support, probably a revisit by funders that haven't typically looked at this sector of the business case for funding the sector. If we take a combination of government and regulatory action at a national level, you need consistent political support along the value chain. There are many, many tales of transition metal mines being stalled or even terminated because the permitting is taking too long or because it's imposing insurmountable hurdles. There's one in the UK at the moment, Tungsten West, is awaiting permits before it can get further funding. And whilst it's waiting, it has to cut staff. Perhaps it's a bit of a test of how really committed the UK government is as to whether those permits come quickly enough for that project to, to be viable. But it's not the only one. You know, globally, that is a problem. At an international level, you need effective and coordinated government policies um, to incentivize and require companies and, and financiers to get involved. And you know, if we if we start with adopting greener technologies and practices, the unilateral adoption of policy or regulation can lead to an unintended unfairness. 
as an example, if we take the EU carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is discouraging EU companies from shifting their production abroad to reduce their carbon tax exposure, that's a good policy in itself. The US has taken the approach of subsidising clean energy use. And the EU is concerned its producers may decamp to the US to benefit from that. So it's thinking of offering something similar here, subsidising green energy use. Again, probably sensible steps. Developing countries with limited budgets and little prospect of the promised climate action funding that's supposed to come from industrial countries, they're spending their constrained budgets on adaptation, not on emissions reduction. Which means then, when you look at the picture as a whole, they can't compete with the EU producers because they're not reducing their emissions. And so then they're not getting their revenues and they're not getting their tax returns and they can't even afford their adaptation, let alone emissions reduction. So really needs to be a very coordinated approach by by governments. And hopefully that is what we will see from, from COP28, um, you know, covering everything from the ESG requirements through to transparency and responsible sourcing, support for innovative technologies. You know, there's not only is there a question of how you get the stuff out of the ground, but there's how to use that product efficiently, make it last longer, probably discourage quite so much usage by the consumer, quite so much turnover and better recycling, repurposing and supporting the the just transition, as I say, you know, shifting communities who've been prejudiced by a shift towards a cleaner practice, ensuring that it's not detrimental to them. So I would expect to see COP28 push quite hard in that direction, I think, on the, on the global coordination. I think we need to see more government-led funding. Take as an example the UFK regime in Germany, which is a core part of the German government's raw materials supply security chain. It's not the only country doing it, but I think there probably need to be more governments setting up that sort of regime for real, meaningful, immediate funding. It supports that country's desire to secure access, but it can also de-risk projects in a way that can open the door to less specialist funders, which then brings us to those funders. So finance typically comes at the moment from specialist investors, traders, family firms, specialist funds, specialist banks. But there's a limited pool of that and you know, undoubtedly not enough to fund the expansion that's required. So in addition, I think we need to see the more generalist funders change the way they approach these transactions, perhaps take a longer view of pricing risk, perhaps a more bespoke analysis of the specific opportunity rather than a general shying away from dirty dirty assets and technological uncertainty, and perhaps an acceptance that a just transition to global net zero is the driving force, not purely metals and mineral net zero. It's got to be seen as part of the bigger picture. So coordinated approaches are absolutely key and funding is fundamental to achieve a just transition as well as of course as part of that net zero within the sector and I think from what you're saying significantly is it's not just about the sector it's about the global drive towards achieving net zero. Yeah. So in terms of funding that, that being the case what is the sector doing to achieve net zero in terms of financing? So I think we're seeing a number of steps to overcome those hurdles. Um, it's, it is moving itself as a sector along a road of just transition and reduced emissions. We see companies actively working to reduce carbon footprint and overall environmental impact, as I mentioned, hydrogen powered tr- trucks, increased interest in recycling and reusing and giving products a longer life. We see an increase in integrating ESG considerations into the operations, including ethical sources of material, labor practices, minimizing social and environmental impacts. 
about 20% of companies in the sector now have nature-related pledges, for example, which is great. But on you know on the flip side, it's still uncommon for companies to follow the principles of a free prior and informed consent on displacing or sharing space with communities. There remains a key part to the just transition here, ensuring communities no longer employed in coal mining or in production methods that have been automated are given support and alternative employment so they're not left behind. Larger companies are investing in more research and innovation. Again, um, Anglo-American very famously a year or so ago came out with its hydrogen-powered trucks. We see them exploring carbon capture and storage, recycling, um, and, and circular economy more, more broadly. There's an increasing number of membership bodies assembling standards and policies for stakeholders across the value chain. And to some extent, that allows them to validate their transition or just transition credentials to satisfy their investors, governments, financiers, and and therefore the social license. And we see not only uh, producers uh, signing up to those standards, but also the investors uh, signing up to them. Through that, perhaps we're seeing investors encouraging the mining sector to reduce its emissions by demanding clear carbon pricing and measurable emission reduction targets. And we see financial institutions increasingly offering loans and credit lines that have favourable terms if you can demonstrate a commitment to your ESG standards. And integrating the ESG standards into investment decisions does help direct capital towards the more sustainable projects. But we do need to ensure across all of this that perfection doesn't become the enemy of the good. And the real goal has to be kept in mind, the global net zero transition and not just the mining and metals one. Thank you. It, it seems really clear that the environmental and social aspects are key and how these will be reflected in standards that are either already developed or are being developed by the sector. And obviously, these standards in themselves are then linked to financing. So it, it, it all seems very much interlinked. Mm. Perhaps we could look at it from a slightly different angle. Where are the opportunities for clients that are financing or looking to finance the sector rather than the actual participants? I I think there are plenty of opportunities. I think we will see the ore-rich jurisdictions and the companies with a focus on critical minerals develop a powerful position um, and the opportunity to move themselves up the value chain if they can meet increasingly rigorous ESG requirements. So I think there'll be opportunities for funders to support those jurisdictions and those producers in in achieving that. I think that, again, there'll be opportunities to finance um, the exploitation of the increased demand for particular minerals, the ones that are are growing in the critical critical space. Clients should be following technological trends and and look at the best way to anticipate where that's going to be. I think also there's an opportunity to finance the what isn't the the obvious part of the value chain, which is your know, production processing application. But the sort of sidelines of it, the recycling, the repurposing, the better efficiency. I think companies that are able to uh, approach and and assess research and technology type sectors will, I think, funders who can who can support those types of companies will have a lot of opportunity in just making the system more efficient in the way that it uses the ores, whether in quantity, whether in processing, whether in life cycle longevity. So I think there are plenty of opportunities there. That's interesting. I I think the idea of establishing partnerships is going to be very important in so many sectors, not only in mining and commodities and the drive towards net zero. I think that's absolutely right. 
if, if we can close with a look towards the future, what will be the most important steps in the next, let's say, five years to help the mining and commodities sector and the drive towards achieving in itself or towards achieving globally net zero? So I think five years is an interesting time frame. The, the lead time on exploration to development to production is so long that many of these steps simply can't wait five years if we're going to achieve the, the current global net zero timelines or the sub-timelines. You know, by 2030, the UK has legislated that the sale of new internal combustion engine cars will be banned. The lead time for some of the technology advancements that are needed to support that will only just fit within that time frame. So there isn't really time to, to make a five-year plan. It needs to be a two or three-year plan um, for quite a lot of this. All the stakeholders, be they government, society at large, or funders, need to recognise the fundamental role of mining and metals in the global drive to net zero. And I think there needs to be a shift in mindset to make sure that even if there's a slower progression to net zero within the metals and minerals sector, that mustn't derail the overall net zero's target from a global perspective. Um, I think we do need to see an increase, and, and probably this is where hopefully COP28 will produce helpful stuff, an increase in the governmental and finance sector support for metals and minerals production and refinement, specifically along the value chain and more generally. But um, in relation to critical minerals, it'll be key, I think, for a just transition to, to the global net zero ambitions. Within the sector itself, I think you know, we will need to see rapid adoption and scaling up of innovation. But that does all come from these points above about funding. Um, and that innovation will reduce emissions and it will reduce resource consumption. And as I say, resource consumption, both within itself, you know, making batteries more efficient, for example, or solar panels more efficient, but also reducing the need for new, I think, longevity, repurposing and recycling will, will all come into that. Um, but the biggest point is to not lose sight of the global target of, of net zero in the attempt to make the sector net zero within itself. Thank you, Daisy, for taking the time to share your expertise today. I'd like to recap just some of the main points that uh, you've discussed. The focus of the discussion was on mining and metals. And within that context, the projects are complex with often competing challenges and demands, in particular when considering ESG, sustainability, new technologies and increasing and changing demands. Funding is crucial for the sector to drive towards net zero. Even if the sector cannot achieve net zero within itself, it can contribute towards the overall goal of global net zero. But so too is the consistent political and regulatory support that is also critical. And finally, collaboration and partnerships will be key going forward, both between private sector stakeholders, but also within the public sector at both a national and global level. Daisy, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you very much for having me, Vara. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And sincere thanks to the listeners for your time and engagement. Please do get in touch with your feedback or if you would like to discuss any of the topics that we've covered today. To listen or view the transcripts of all the episodes of this COP28 series, please visit wfw.com. We look forward to welcoming you to our next episode of Watson, Farley and Williams Countdown to COP Financing and Fueling the Future podcast series. 